after the children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt, Moses went upon the mountains of Sinai and he said to the Lord, if I found favor, favor in your sight, show me your glory. Show me your glory. After you've seen all the plagues of Israel, after you've seen the Red Sea departed, parted, show me your glory. Listen to what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. I've known you in this personal and very intimate way. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses, after all he had seen, still wanted a deeper closer, more intimate relationship with God. And he said, Lord, let me see your glory. And I think that is a great request for God's people. God, let me see your glory. Let me grow deeper in my understanding of who you are and my love for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Let's look to him. He He's allowed us by the sacrifice of his own son to come boldly into the throne of grace. And let's call upon him this morning. Let's ask him to show us his glory, to deepen our relationship with him, to increase our love, our obedience, our faithfulness to him, that he might be the delight of our life, the fulfillment of all of our desires, the greatest aspiration for us. Let's ask God to have mercy upon our nation. Let's ask God to deliver us. Let's ask him that he might be exalted in our lives, our church, in our nation. Lord, receive our worship this morning and show us your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, you may be seated. Well, get your Bible and let's turn to Revelation chapter 9. We're continuing our study in this. Great book, and I will tell you that uh, probably no chapter in the book of Revelation is more confusing, uh, more controversial than this chapter. And uh, hopefully, we will make this understandable by the time that we are we are done. But uh, I want us to begin this morning simply by reading this passage, getting it in our minds. So with everything we say, then we'll have a reference to what we are speaking of. So join me in reading in Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel, <clears throat> who had the trumpet, <clears throat> release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths, and the tails, their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immoralities, nor of their thefts. This is the word of God, and let's pray. Our Father, we come to you, as always, seeking your enlightenment, your understanding. We pray that your spirit would 
direct our minds and our thinking. And, and Lord, I pray that your spirit would oversee my mouth this morning, that I might speak accurately and clearly in a way that would be helpful to your people. We pray that as your word goes forth, that it will penetrate in the depths of our beings to our hearts, that it will manifest in, in encouragement and strength and resolution in being faithful to you. And we pray, Lord, that these words would also be words that would draw to yourself those who need to repent and turn to faith in Christ. And we ask these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John's vision of the sixth trumpet demonstrates that God's judgment progressively intensifies as the unbelieving refuse to repent. And that's, in fact, the entire seven-year tribulation is a demonstration of that reality. If I, as we put up our graphic, just to remind you of where we've been, we've been looking at this on numerous occasions, but just to remind you of where we are, we have seen the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, take from the hand of God the Father a scroll. This scroll is representative of the title deed to creation. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in the process of taking back control of creation from Satan and his followers. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And as each seal is opened, the judgments of God are poured out upon the earth. These judgments, in each case, are growing in intensity. Now, the purpose of these judgments is is twofold. First, they are intended to cause those people who are unbelieving to see their need of Christ and turn to Him in faith. And secondly, they are for those who are refusing and continuing in unrepentance a, a judgment, a punishment upon their lives. God's judgment falls upon this world like blows from a hammer driving a nail into hard wood. And it often takes many blows in order to accomplish his purpose. God is, is as it were, is pounding this world to accomplish his purpose with these judgments. And in, in many ways, the tribulation mirrors the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Uh, in order to deliver his people from their bondage to the Egyptians, God brought a series of plagues, ten plagues upon the Egyptian nation. And, and, and with each plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. I mean, sometimes he would try to bargain. At one point, he even pleaded. But in the end, he would always harden his heart. You see, instead of letting Israel go, Pharaoh actually reduced their provisions and intensified their labor. He made it more difficult upon them. And see, one plague was not sufficient. Nine plagues were not sufficient. 
It was only after the cumulative effect of the first nine plagues that the tenth plague, which was most severe, which was resulted in the killing of all the firstborn of the house of of, uh, Egypt, that the tenth plague finally convinced Pharaoh to let those people go. And even after he let them go, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he pursued them all the way to the Red Sea where his army was ultimately drowned. Moses learned something vitally important about God through that experience. And when he was on the mountain, that mountain of Sinai that we read about this morning, after he had received the Ten Commandments, and Moses had gone down, seen the the people of Israel having already turned away from God, worshiping a golden idol, and he he broke the tablets there. And God says, make another set of stones and bring it up to me. And when he comes up, here's what the Lord says to him. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, he says, And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You see, in God's dealing with humanity, it is either going to be forgiveness and repentance or it's going to be judgment. And we have been seeing this similar response in the book of Revelation. As the judgments have fallen upon the world, many have already repented and turned to faith in Christ. But many others have repeatedly, like Pharaoh, hardened their heart and resisted. And so God is still bringing the hammer down upon the world, still seeking people to turn to him in faith. And so we see that God's judgment progressively intensifies as the unbelieving continue to refuse to repent. God's judgment will continue to intensify until finally there is no grace. Until there is nothing but judgment. And as we come to the last half of Revelation chapter 9, we are now approaching that time. We are in the seventh seal. And we are, which consists of seven trumpets. Now again, look, look where we are. We're at the end. We're at the end, and there, there are seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is seven bowls. We are at the sixth trumpet. We are we are at a time of great intensity. Uh, this is also uh, the, the called the second woe. You remember in chapter 8, an eagle flew over, and he said, Woe, woe, woe. There are three woes. And this is, this is the level of intensity where we are, the second woe. And it's hard to imagine a woe that could be greater than that because after we looked at the first woe, remember what we saw? Hell on earth. A horde of demons released from the bottomless pit out onto the earth, tormenting men with their stings for five months. Yes, that's a woe. But this is a woe that's even greater 
And even then, people refused to repent. Like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts and faced greater judgment. The sixth trumpet announces another more severe demonic attack on the rebellious world. And this, this attack unfolds in three stages. First, we see that as God's judgment intensifies, vicious demons invade. It tells us in, in verse 13 of chapter 9, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden, golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, when the, when the sixth trumpet sounds, John hears a voice. And the voice is not identified because the focus is not on who speaks, but where the voice is coming from. It tells us that the voice came from the four horns of the altar, of the golden altar, which is before God. You know, altars typically had horns, four horns on each corner. And these horns look like animal horns. They're there simply to hold sacrifices, to keep sacrifices from sliding off when they're laid on there. And the, the four horns is the idea of the, of, the, of the totality of what the altar itself means. And you see, John has already seen this altar twice before in his visions. In the tabernacle and in the temple, this altar was the place where incense was offered and it pictured the prayers of God's people for mercy going up to heaven. So it, this is the place where it's pictured the prayer of God's people. And But in John's vision, the golden altar became a an altar of imprecatory prayers. You remember, the people of God began to cry out to God for vengeance, for the persecution, for the murder that had been brought on all these martyrs, these thousands, an untold number of martyrs. Their prayers are going up to God and asking God to act. And then we see a little later that an angel comes to that altar and he fills his censer with coals from that altar and then he throws it to the earth. And this activates the trumpet judgments. In other words, God is acting. God is responding to the prayers of his people. God is bringing judgment upon the earth in response to what people have been praying And it's astonishing to John, really, that from the altar that has been associated with mercy, now come words of judgment. And when this judgment occurs, or this trumpet is blown, uh, judgment is going to occur. The time for mercy, you see, has passed. And the altar of mercy becomes an altar of judgment. Friends, this is a scary thing. A, a very scary thing. You know, we heard about God who is merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and, and giving forgiveness to, to thousands. God has been such an incredibly gracious God. But now 
we're at that time where people have resisted to the point that mercy is just about to pass out of the picture altogether. And the voice coming from the altar commanded the sixth angel who had the trumpet. He says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the fact that these four angels are bound indicates that they are unholy angels, what we would know as demons. You see, holy angels are nowhere in Scripture ever referred to as being bound. Since holy angels always perfectly carry out God's will, there's no need for them to be restricted in any way. And it also tells us that God has complete control over all the demons uh, in the universe. And there's something else that's very interesting here. The word bound is in the perfect tense. And what it tells us is that these angels were bound in the past, and they have continually been bound until this point at which they are now going to have continuing results. There's going to, there's something going to happen as a result of them being released. They have a purpose. God bound them in the past and they've been bound all this time, but now in God's sovereign plan, they are released and they have a purpose upon this earth. And that purpose is judgment upon mankind. Now, let me just put up here a map for you because the site of the four angels' imprisonment is a familiar one. It says they are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, rising from the, from the north there all the way up into Mount Ararat, uh, where the hark was landed in Turkey, it comes all the way down uh, through uh, the uh, Middle East, uh, 1,700 miles before emptying into the Persian Gulf. It's the longest and most important river in the uh, Middle East, and it figures prominently in the Old Testament. It's one of the four rivers that emptied into the river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden, where it divided. It, it was near the Euphrates, where sin began. It, it, was, it was where the first lie was told. It was where the first murder was committed. It was where the Tower of Babel was built that disseminated all the false religion of the world. It was near the Euphrates that so much happened in the Old Testament. The Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the Promised Land. And the region near the Euphrates was central to three world powers that dominated Israel. And you have the the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Medo-Persians. And it was on the banks of the Euphrates that the people of Israel endured 70 long years in captivity. So this is a river, ultimately, which the enemies of God will cross into to engage in the battle of the Armageddon of Armageddon. This is an important river. And the use of the definite article here, the four angels, suggests that, that they, they form a specific group. Uh, their identity is not revealed, uh, but many believe that they may be the demons that uh, uh, that control the four major world powers at this in the early times of Israel. 
uh, the, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the, the Romans. Now, let me give you a little picture here. Daniel 10 provides some insight into the warfare that goes on between demons, unholy angels, and holy angels. Did you know that there's a battle going on right now in the world? This very moment, there's a battle raging between holy angels and unholy angels, between God's angels and demons. And this tells us in, in, in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 10, a holy angel says to Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I have been left there with the king or the kings of Persia. Do you get the picture here? This is a holy angel speaking, and he calls these angels princes. There is a prince of the kingdom of Persia. There is a demon that is the the hierarchy, the the ruler over a nation. And just like people have governments in which there are a, a hierarchy of people involved, demons have a hierarchy of individuals that are that are involved in the world. And friends, there are demons. In Washington, D.C. I didn't have to tell you that, I know. There are demons in Moscow. There are demons in every capital of the world. And they are at work for nefarious purposes. They are against God. They are working mightily. And some people look at me and think, that sounds like, that doesn't sound real. That doesn't sound like, that sounds like a fairy tale. Friends, this is a greater reality than you could ever possibly imagine. And he goes on in, in verse 20, and he says, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Again, now, we could, that would be a whole message, but what, what we're seeing, whatever these fallen angels are, they are in control of huge demonic armies set to wage war against fallen mankind when God releases them to do so. Do you understand that if God allowed it, Satan would come and slaughter you in this moment? This is real. And Satan, satanic forces, see themselves aggressively thwarting the purpose of God, but in reality, they are doing the very purposes of God. And he is sovereign and in control. And secondly, as God's judgment intensifies, violent death results. He says in verse 15, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Death, which was sought desperately under the fifth seal, now becomes the primary result in the sixth seal. People were such torment, they were seeking death and couldn't find it. And now death is coming to a third of the population of the world. 
and the four angels were bound at the Euphrates, it says, had been prepared by God for this exact hour and day and month and year were released. Isn't it amazing? God has a sovereign plan over this world that is calculated down to the very hour, down to the very minute, down to the very second. God is controlled. And, and he will release these four high-ranking demonic beings, and they are going to lead hordes of demons over the face of the earth, killing mankind. Now, friends, you say, well, that's, that's extreme. No, listen. God's judgment intensifies as people continue to refuse to repent. There's plenty of opportunity for people to repent. There's even still opportunity for people to repent. But God is bringing this. You see, God could have just taken every unbelieving person and put them in the lake of fire immediately, where they would spend eternity. Instead, this gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, grace-giving, forgiving God brings about a whole series of judgments that intensify giving people the opportunity to repent. And the purpose of these demons and their hordes was that they might kill a third of mankind. The judgment of the fourth seal killed one quarter of the earth's population. And if you had this third, well, that, that's over a, a half of the world's pre-tribulation population. This is a staggering number. It doesn't even include those who were killed under, under other judgments. The, re, the repeated emphasis, though, throughout the trumpet judgments on this one-third, that number of God, shows that this is orchestrated by God. It's overseen by Him, and it has its purpose of drawing people back to God in repentance. It's controlled, precise, not just natural happenings. And this, you know, you can, you can only imagine how this, this slaughter is going to affect the world. It's going to disrupt everything in humanity. Just burying all the bodies is going to be a constant factor. To slaughter over a billion people would require an unimaginably large force. And verse 16 says the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. He says, I heard the number of them. This number is so large that, that John could never have counted them. Someone had to tell him how many there were. And he said, I heard the, that there are 200 million. It, in addition to the demons who have roamed the earth throughout history, in addition to those we've already seen that got cast down from heaven or now on the earth, in addition to all those demons that were released from the abyss, from the bottomless pit, and now are hoarding out up over the earth, this is a new army of demons that is now released upon the earth. This judgment is intensified greatly. 
And the use of the plural armies may imply that the attacking forces are divided into four forces under the control of each one of these demons that were bound at the Euphrates. Now, look with me to verse 17. He says, And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads and with them they do harm. Now, Many interpreters have tried to understand these armies as human armies. And, and I want to take the, the time, if you'll permit, to talk about this for just a moment because this is one of the areas where people get so confused in the book of Revelation. You see, it's like, you know, uh, the coronavirus and masks and all those kind of things. You know, you hear so many different things that people don't even know, have a clue what to believe. And when it comes to the book of Revelation, people get confused because what they hear, they hear something from one perspective on the book of Revelation, and then they hear something else from another one, and they, they try to put them together to try to synthesize them, and it doesn't make sense. And so it's very confusing sometimes because people come, will ask me questions about this, and they've heard other ways of understanding this. But let, let me try to, to explain this, and hopefully I won't confuse you more. Preterists. Remember we studied preterists at the beginning? Well, there are people who believe that the book of Revelation has to do with events that happened in the first century of the people that lived then. It's historical. And many historical premillennialists see this passage as referring to ancient warriors known as the Parthians. I'm going to put our map back up on the screen for just a moment. Because we think of this as, you know, think of there as the Middle East. The, the, but the, and it is in, in reality, the Euphrates River there in that dark blue divides what we know as the, the Near East from the Far East. The Far East uh, includes uh, China, Pakistan, uh, India, uh, Mongolia, all those kind of things. And then you have uh, the, the, the Near East. And there's, a, there's this division. The Euphrates River marked the boundary of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. That's as far as they went. Because when they went across the river, they encountered the Parthians. And, and the, the Parthians dealt out some bitter defeats to the Romans in their uh, quest to expand their empire. And they did this in, in 53 B.C., and then they did it again in 63 A.D., so this was right in the time just before the book of Revelation. And, and the Parthians are what we would know today as modern-day Iranians. And, and the Parthians were especially known for their use of cavalry, uh, not cavalry, but cavalry, and their um, 
the use of Arabian horses. And, and the, the, they were also skillful archers. They fought in unorthodox ways against Western forces. The Romans came with these huge infantries, walls, long walls, thick with, with men advancing, wiping out everything in their way. The Parthians came against this on their horses, and they would fight, engage these, these, this infantry, and then they would pretend to, to retreat. And then the, the infantry would run after them. As they would run out after them, their forces would be thinned. They would be divided and separated. And then after a while, after they had thinned them out, the Parthians would turn around backwards on their horses, take out their bows, and begin to mow down the infantry that was following them. They even had camels that served as a moving arsenal where they could renew their supply of arrows and they, they wiped out huge numbers of infantry, of Roman infantry. Now this, this is a fascinating fact, but here, why am I telling you this? You see, because many people say, well, okay, this is a picture here of, of these, uh, armies that have they're riding on horses, and they have tails like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. Well, you see, you can see how the connection might be made with that. But in order to hold this view, you have to make everything that is described in this chapter symbolic. Not an actual event happening, but simply a reference to an historical event. In other words, it has nothing to do with us today or our future other than the fact that you've got this, you make this point that somehow you see God is going to win in the end. The Romans are the bad guys. God uses the Parthians to defeat them and we win. We're going to win in the end. It's going to be a naturalistic solution to problems. Y'all follow me? Did I confuse you? Okay. Now, let me clue you into a word, a pop apocalyptic genre. That is a phrase that you will hear in many churches across America today, apocalyptic genre. And what that means is, is that the book of Revelation is not to be taken literally, but it is to be taken, it's like a political cartoon. It exaggerates things in order to make a spiritual point. It's not literal. But I want to tell you, friends, with everything within me, I believe this is real. This is literal. This is going to happen in the future. Now, others see these armies as a reference to the future, to future human armies. They see the descriptions in verse 17 as descriptions of guns and helicopters and and jet aircraft and tanks and rockets. And, And some have suggested that this is the human army that is pictured for us in Revelation 16 and verse 12, led by the kings from the east, noting that in the 1970s, the Chinese army numbered some 200 million. I did research on that. I could never find any record of the Chinese army ever reaching 200 million. Today, they have the largest standing army in the world, and that army is about 
2.18 million people, not 200 million. So, but apart from that, there is no reference made in Revelation 16 to the size of the army led by the kings of the east. And further, the army uh, arrives on the scene under the sixth bowl judgment, which is under the seventh trumpet, not the sixth. So what you're doing is trying to mix those things. I, I don't think it works. And, and, and though it's, it is possible, I think it's theoretically possible that if you look at the Far East and all those nations, China, India, Pakistan, Mongolia, and others, that there could, they could marshal an army of 200 million. It's not beyond conception. But the, the logistics of trying to marshal all of those and supply them and transport them all over the world, because this is happening all over the world, not just locally, seems stretched. Seems to argue against it. The figurative language used here to describe the army's horses suggests that this is supernatural rather than human. And the fact that it's commanded by four demons. Before describing uh, the horses, the actual—excuse the, uh, <clears throat> me—the actual agents of destruction. Understand, it's the horses, not the riders. John briefly describes those who sat him. He noted that the riders had breastplates the color of fire, and of hyacinth, and of brimstone. The color of fire is red. Uh, the color of hyacinth—it's a dark blue, to anywhere that to a, to a, even a black. And then brimstone is a sulfurous yellow. It describes a rock that when it is ignited, that it puts off a toxic fume. And these are the colors and the features of hell. You know, when you, when you go to the ball game, you, what do you wear? You wear your team's colors. Well, these, these demons come wearing the colors of hell. They're here. And, John notes that the heads of these horses were like the heads of lions. Now, these are not actual horses. These, they have characteristics of lions. They are vicious. They are deadly. They, they are stalkers. They, are, they take down their prey, and it's terrifying, a terrifying death. John knows three ways that the horses kill their victims. All of them picture violent, the violent fury of hell. They incinerated them with fire, and they fixated with them with smoke and brimstone. And John saw that the, the devastating results of this deadly demonic assault was that a third of mankind says was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, by the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceed out of their mouths. And by the way, the word plagues is now going to begin to appear frequently in the, Revela- in the book of Revelation because now it is becoming not a judgment unto repentance, but a judgment, a final judgment. And as, as if the description of these things weren't terrifying enough, John learns some more details about them. He says the, the, the power of these horses in their mouths, but it's also in their tails. Their tails are like deadly venomous serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. This is the second time we've seen the nature of demons. There's something in the, in the tail, some aspect of that, that with which they harm. They're 
They're torturous beings. As God's judgment intensifies, these vicious demons invade and violent death results. And finally, we see that as God's judgment intensifies, vehement defiance continues. Vehement, passionate, strong, determined defiance of God. Look what he says in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed excuse me, by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and silver and of brass and stone of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. The death of one-third of the earth's remaining population is going to be the most catastrophic event to ever hit the earth since the flood. And yet, amazingly, the hardness of human hearts is going to manifest itself. In spite of all that they have experienced, these years of judgment pounding upon the earth, they still refuse to repent. And they're they're intense, they're passionate about it. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Absolutely unimaginable. Instead of worshiping the lamb, they're going to worship the beast. And as he concludes his, his account, John lists five sins that are representative of this defiance of these people who refuse to repent. First, there is idolatry. In, in verse 20, he says, they did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not, notice, to worship demons. Do you understand that when people worship the material things of this world, the works of their own hands, that you are worshiping a demon. Materialism is idolatry. Worshiping the things of this world, putting them priority over God, over all other things. It happens all the time. Our world puts the material things, the, the, the gold, the, the silver, the brass, the stone, the wood, whatever it is, whether it's a car or whether it's a house or, or whether it's a material thing, we put those things above God. That's idolatry. And we cling to those things. We hold to those things rather than repent and turn to God. See, that's been happening ever since the fall of man. We've been worshiping the works of our hands. And all through Scripture, the works of your hands, is a, it's a euphemism for idolatry, an idol, something you made, something you put together. Psalm 96.5 says, all the gods of the peoples are demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Over and over, you see, when people worship idols or gods that do not exist, then demons who do exist will impersonate those gods and hold the idolaters captive to their demonic powers. That's what happens all the time. 
People think they're worshiping a God, but in reality, they're worshiping a demon. False religions are not devoid of the supernatural. They're full of it because, see, this is the greatest opportunity that demons have to capture the control and the hearts and the souls of people. At a a future point in the world, idolatry, mysticism, spiritism, Satanism, and all other forms of form religion are just going to become pandemic as demons lead people into this wicked behavior, if it's not already happening. Unrestrained wickedness will run amok in a world as human, never before seen in human history. There's a second sin. In addition to idolatry, it's violent crimes like murder will be rampant. So there's not going to be any sense of morality. And what's going to happen is that the people are going to begin to take on the, the nature of these demons that are killing people. Not only are demons going to be killing people, but other people are going to be killing other people. And the third sin is sorcery. The Greek word from which we get our English words, pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. It's pharmakia. And pharmakia can also be used to speak of poisons, amulets, charms, seances, witchcraft, incarnations, magic spells, contacting mediums, or or any object that's tied to idolatry. And all of these things ultimately are also attached to drugs. Because, see, drugs were believed and still are believed to induce a higher religious state of communion with false gods. People get, quote, high, (laughs) not just altitude, but in sense of understanding and enlightenment and and relationship with demon, demonic beings. And we're going to see that. I mean, if you think the drugs are bad now, it, it'll be even worse. The fourth sin with which the unregenerate will refuse to return is immorality. This is the word pornea. It's the root word from which we get our English word pornography. If, if I don't think there's an industry in the world, an industry in the world that makes more money today than pornography. Trillions. It's incredible. And it, it includes every form, I'll just say every form that could be imagined of sexual sin. And we're going to see that run rampant in that day, and finally people will refuse to repent of thefts. Of course, you know, what's going to happen? You're in a world where you're losing everything, and people are going to be fighting over all the resources that left, food and water and and whatever, anything. And this is going to be that kind of world in which people live unparalleled in human history. Now, let me just say this. The outpouring of wrath of God on human people, on humanity during the tribulation demonstrates, I believe, two important points, two truths. First, even the threat of imminent judgment from God is not enough to turn people away from their sin. Now, I believe that thorough, swift, and adequate punishment of criminal, criminal offenses is a deterrent. I mean, that's why we have laws. We mean, we hold that as, as, a, as a truth in our, in our world, that when you bring judgment or 
so you you bring you convict people who have committed crimes, then it's a deterrent. But the Bible also tells us that there is a level of depravity bound up in the heart of people that, when indulged, render people completely insensitive to their sin. Paul calls this as a conscience that has been seared with a hot iron. He says that in, in first, second Timothy 3.13, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Once you engage in this, you go down a road and you get so far and then you become insensitive to your sin. Even when people see the penalty, the results of what they're doing and the, and the, and what is happening in the world because of their sin, they still choose to try to satisfy their, their fleshly desires rather than to turn to God. And you see, one of the things that God is doing in the tribulation is He's calling out. There are people that will repent when Adversity, when difficulty, when punishment for sin comes, they will turn away. They will repent. But there are some who will not. This is a judgment. This is a, a refining, as it were, in the world. A dividing of the sheep and the goats. And Secondly, this passage is a clear justification for the judgment of God. See, in every generation, there are people who feel that a God of judgment is inappropriate. If God's to be God, then he must be characterized only by, you know, love and long-suffering and tolerance in order to remain a deity. But if he becomes a God of justice and judgment whose patience would somehow be limited, then he's not, unwor- he's not worried to be God. But you can't read the reactions of the survivors of the Great Tribulation, especially in light of this onslaught of of, of demonic hordes, without coming away with the sense that there has to come some point in history when God brings judgment. Because if there is no judgment, then there absolutely is no hope for righteousness in the world. There's no hope for righteousness. There's no hope for a better world because sin is going to dominate it. And what do we see in every nation? Nations sometimes start out great, but then they begin that slow descent into sin. And then that turn becomes steeper and steeper and steeper. And then it becomes almost a free fall. I think we're on the edge of a free fall in our nation. And this is not something to take lightly, but I take, I take comfort in knowing that God is a God of righteousness. I take, I take comfort when he says, Yahweh, that's the personal name of God. Yahweh compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I take comfort in that reality. I hope that you do too.
And I have one final verse for anyone who has not made the decision to turn to Christ, Christ in faith. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Or you may have to let God may keep pounding and he will keep pounding until there's nothing but pounding. Father, we thank you today for this word as difficult as it is to hear. It, as hard as it is to think about. We are grateful that you are a God of righteousness and that you are intending to bring this world back to a place of righteousness, of beauty, of glory, a place in which you rule, in which we will dwell with you forever without pain and sorrow and all the things that sin brings into our lives. And Father, I pray for those who have heard this word today, I pray that you would grant to them not to have to experience more difficult things, but God, that they would turn to you today in faith. And listen, if that's you right now, just say to God, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that, you know, I've I've been concerned about the things in my own life, things that I'm doing and accomplishing and the works of my own hands. Lord, I, I know the, the anger in my heart, the hatred. I know what I would do. I'm sometimes close to doing. I know the, all the things that I've experienced in, in my life. The, I, I'm, I'm inundated every day with all the immorality of the world. Lord, I, I know I've sinned. And I want to turn today to Jesus Christ because I know that he alone has paid the price for my sin on the cross and that he rose again on the third day and that he's alive and that he will give me that forgiveness and that loving kindness that you have promised. Change me on the inside. Let me see your glory. Let me know you personally. Let me walk with you. Give me the ability to obey you and to proclaim this wonderful truth to others. Save me today. And oh God, may it be that many would pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did pray that prayer, would you let me know somehow? I would love to hear about it. With that, you are dismissed.